Good evening. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to be referring to a couple different passages this evening. But before I pray, I just want to uh, share a, a quote that I came across today from a 19th century preacher named Octavius Winslow. He said this, Little did they dream as they bound the fatal wood upon his shoulder by whose power that tree was made to grow and from whom the beings who bore him to, to the death drew their existence. So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. Oh, the depth of Jesus' love to sinners. Let's pray. Father, we come before you recognizing the depth of your love and the depth of the love of Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would take us deeper into that love as we give our attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I've, I've titled this Good Friday message, The King Who Serves His People. The attempt to reverse this direction of service is fraught with danger. The seemingly sensible impulse by the people to render service to their king is in fact a risky one. It must be done, of course. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, Romans 12, 11. But be careful. How can we serve the king who said, how can we serve the king who, uh, who said, the son of man came not to be served? But to serve. Why would we rush to serve the one who came not to be served? We are almost hardwired to think that the lesser should serve the greater, but the Bible rips out that faulty wiring and reconfigures it to work in a different way. If we say we love because he first loved us, we must also say we serve because he first served us. Indeed, the first order of business for human beings is to learn what it means to be served by the king for he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many mark 10:45 we must first sit at the feet of the king who serves his people and only after drinking deeply from his service to us are we able to learn how to serve him in the right kind of way do you remember martha at the end of luke chapter 10 she welcomed Jesus into her house, so far so good, but she allowed herself to be distracted with much serving to the point that she frustratingly asked the Lord if he cared that my sister Mary has left me to serve alone. What had Mary chosen to do? Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary was focused on the one thing, and she chose to be served by the Lord who taught her. But Martha's heart was divided. Jesus told her, Martha, 
Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This much is clear. If the attempt to serve the Lord is characterized by distraction, anxiety, and frustration, then something is amiss. Learn to choose the good portion. Let the Lord minister to you. The Lord may invite you to serve Him in any number of ways, but when He does, it's not because He needs your service. It says in Acts chapter 17, we'll get to Luke 22 momentarily, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Since the Lord is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, make sure that you never serve the Lord as though he did need something. He doesn't. He doesn't need you to serve him. But you most certainly need him to serve you. From the opening scenes of creation, the creator God serves his people. A God who can create the entire universe out of nothing obviously doesn't need anything that the universe offers. God created a beautiful, inhabitable world in which his image bearers could flourish. God supplied all that was necessary to sustain and multiply life. God provided the man with a wife. After they fell into sin, God clothed them with garments to cover their shame and promised to send a son who would make everything right again. One of the characteristics of lifeless idols is that they have to be propped up by men. Idols are pathetic. They have to be made they have to be set up in a temple or on an altar. They have to be carried from place to place. Idols need idolaters in order for the ruse to work. Apparently, sinful human beings have a preference for gods that need us. Sinful human beings have a preference for little gods that are harmless, safe, and under our control. Apparently, sinful human beings would rather have a lifeless idol that needs them than have the living God who doesn't need them. But it's a bad deal. Lifeless idols never loved anybody. But the living God loves and serves His people. Th this contrast between lifeless idols that people carry and the living God who carries His people is set forth in the opening verses of Isaiah 46, verses 1 to 4, which says this, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. The Lord bears us up, Psalm 68, 19, carries us, Isaiah 46, 4, delivers us, Psalm 50, 15, helps us, Isaiah 41, 14, satisfies and renews us, Psalm 103, verse 5, answers and looks after us, Hosea 14, 8, and gives us rest, 
Matthew 11:28. He holds us up, we don't hold him up. The way of the flesh is to depend on yourself and on the things that you carry. And this is exhausting, and eventually you wither and die. But the way of the Lord is to depend on the Lord and trust Him to carry you. And this is refreshing and fruitful. Have you lost your way? Have you fallen back into exhausting self-reliance? Do you need to be reminded that the most fundamental way of fellowship with the Lord is to let Him serve you? This brings us to Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27, if you have your eyes on that. This is, this is a very powerful passage about the greater serving the lesser. In the previous passage, Luke 22, 14 to 23, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples and he instituted the Lord's Supper. This is my body which is given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. After describing the meal, Luke shifts his attention to the immaturity of the disciples. In verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The greatest one is about to offer his body and blood on a cross for the salvation of his people, and yet they are jockeying for the position of second greatest. Instead of drinking deeply from the grace of the Lord who is serving them, they are rushing to climb the ladder to see how many people they can look down upon. Jesus tells them that they are thinking like pagan rulers, and then he tells them that they have no business thinking like pagan rulers. Hear what Jesus says in verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The world's way of handling power is to exert power over others. The world's way of hand handling authority is to put others in their subservient place. The world's way of handling greatness is to ascribe titles, positions, chairmanships, gold and silver donor levels, and other forms of recognition. The world's way of hand handling high rank and status is to recline at table and let others serve you. When Jesus asks, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or one who serves, he is highlighting the world's way of thinking. The men re reclining at the table and enjoying their meal outrank the waiters and waitresses and busboys who are serving the men sitting around the table enjoying their meal. The world's way of thinking about rank and status is to climb the ladder, accumulate an entourage of servants, and require your servants to do all the necessary work to prop you up, make your life comfortable, and make you look like a VIP. When Jesus counters this worldly way of, way of operating by saying, but I am among you as one who serves, he is turning the world's view upside down. In terms of authority, power, and status, Jesus outranks everyone. Before his birth, he was declared to be the Son of the Most High. 
who will reign over the house of Jacob forever, Luke chapter 1. At his birth, he was hailed as Christ the Lord, Luke chapter 2. Before, his, before Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist announced Jesus as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire and would, would bring decisive judgment upon the people, Luke chapter 3. And then he preached the good news, summoned a band of followers, healed the sick, cleansed the unclean, released demoniacs from their bondage, bestowed forgiveness on sinners, raised the dead, calmed the storm, multiplied the loaves. Jesus' disciples understood that Jesus outranked them by a massively wide margin. And yet the one who outranked them by a massively wide margin says, I am among you as the one who serves. What, me, what we must see is that when Jesus calls upon his followers to serve others, he is not exempting himself from the way of servanthood. Instead, he is presenting himself as example number one. I, your Lord and teacher and savior, am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is the king who serves his people. One of the implications of that is that we must slow down, pay attention, and understand that our Lord serves us. Now, if you turn forward to John chapter 13, that's the second passage I want us to consider. A striking example of the Lord's service to his people would have been driven home to his disciples around the time that he instituted the Lord's Supper. John 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved his people to the end, to the finish line, even to that very moment four chapters later when he would declare it is finished. John 13 continues, with verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, the information given in verse 3 is very important. We're not simply told that Jesus rose from supper in order to assume the mantle of servanthood. He did rise from supper and assume the mantle of servanthood, but he did this with a certain understanding that is revealed to us in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. Just, just think about that. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. There's an interesting contrast here. In, in Monday school, we've been going through the book of Daniel. And one of the things that we learn in the book of Daniel is that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, knew that he had massive kingly authority over the Neo-Babylonian Empire. In fact, he had even been told that it was the Lord himself who had given him that great power. What did Nebuchadnezzar do with this information that he possessed all this great power? 
Well, we're told in Daniel chapter 4 that he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Up, went up, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, there's nothing wrong with having a position of authority. There's nothing wrong with being assigned a leadership post. But sinners in their sin let it go to their heads and see it as an opportunity for self-adulation and self-promotion. Nebuchadnezzar did have massive kingly authority, and yet he was a mere man, and the Most High God knocked him off his throne in an instant. Far greater than Nebuchadnezzar, our Lord Jesus received all things from the Father. Indeed, the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh, we're told in John 17, verse 2. Even though Jesus far outranked Nebuchadnezzar, contrast their responses to their respective self-awareness of how much they had in their possession. Nebuchadnezzar walked on the roof of the palace and praised himself. Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, poured water into a basin, and washed the dirty and dusty feet of his disciples. Gentile kings lorded over their subjects. But Jesus is the true king who is among us as the one who serves. The highest of kings became the lowliest of servants and washed dirty feet. Contrary to any conception that lowly service is for fragile and insecure people who don't know how to get ahead and make something of their lives, Jesus knew that he possessed all things. He knew where he'd come from, and he knew where he was going. He was the most secure, most powerful, and most knowledgeable person on the planet, let alone just in the room. And yet, he was clothed with the attitude of a servant. He had come to serve his people. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it wasn't just an instance of humble service illustrated by attending to the practical problem of dirty feet. It pointed to something far deeper, our, our need to be spiritually cleansed and forgiven by the Lord. Let's continue there in verse 5. Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Jesus came to be the servant who washes us. Notice that letting Jesus serve you in this way is essential to having fellowship with him. If you protest, Jesus shall never wash my feet, then you must understand his warning, if I do not wash you, you have no share in me. To have a share in Jesus requires that you let him serve you in any and every way he intends to serve you. There's a simple reason why people go off the rails and make shipwreck. 
They don't let Jesus serve them, clean them, bathe them, and wash them. This is the very reason he came. Two chapters later, Jesus said to his disciples, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, John 15, 3. He serves us by speaking holy words that make us clean. Two chapters after that, he prayed for his people saying, And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. John 17, 19. He consecrated himself for our sake so that we might share with him in holy fellowship. He so loved the church, we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, that he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is the king who serves his people by doing everything that is necessary for our cleansing, holiness, and glory. In that stunning moment of John chapter 13, he stooped low to wash the disciples' feet. But even now, though he has returned to the Father, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.15. And he's able to help those who are being tempted, Hebrews 2.18. And he sees to it that we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. Even now, his blood cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1.7. You cannot begin to truly love and serve and forgive others until you have understood the Lord's love, service, and forgiveness toward you. Going back to John chapter 15, verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Our sacrificial service and warm-hearted forgiveness to each other is the fruit of his sacrificial service and warm-hearted forgiveness toward us. As we come to the table, we must remember the good news of the gracious king who serves his people. And he took bread, Luke 22, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Don't come to this table, and I'm, I'm literally referring to these, these tables up here. Don't come to this table because you think that you have something great to offer the Lord. Instead, only come to this table if you have come to know and believe that the Lord has something great to offer you. If you don't know the great salvation that He offers you, then remain seated and study what is happening. 
and consider what might happen if you exchanged your filthy rags for his wonderful grace. But to those who believe, he gave his body for you. He poured out his blood for you. Therefore, come and receive what he has prepared for you. Come thirsty, come hungry. Come needy, come weary. Come bankrupt, come broken. Come weak and vulnerable to temptation. Come with dirty feet and an open heart. Come and let the humble king serve you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not rush too quickly to serve you, but that we would slow down and remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only Savior, came to love and serve and redeem us. I pray that you would open wide our hearts that we might receive all that our Savior gives. In his name I pray. Amen.